Well, good morning, New Breed Church. It is good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I've been away for a few weeks, and I want to just say here at the beginning a special thank you to the pastors here at New Breed who kind of lovingly pushed me to take uh, a few weeks off. Now, I'm especially thankful for Pastor John and Pastor Lance, who are both here this morning. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm thankful for how they, they faithfully brought the Word of God to us. And it is, church, I hope you realize it is a great blessing to be in a church with multiple individuals who can handle, who are called to handle, and capable with handling the Word of God. And I know that over the past few weeks, we've taken a little bit of a break from the book of Daniel, and it's been an encouragement to me. I hope it's been an encouragement to you, even as we were away uh, for a few weeks, we still uh, tuned in and watched and worshiped with you. But I'm excited to jump back into the book of Daniel with you in our series that we've entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship. And what we have been doing is we've been taking the book uh, pretty much just a chapter at a time. And so we, we've come to chapter 9, uh, and this morning we're actually going to do something a little bit different. And we're going to take just a portion of Daniel chapter 9. Now don't worry, we'll come back and do the remaining part of Daniel chapter 9 next week. But but we're going to focus on the first 19 verses. But more specifically, I actually want to focus on one verse of Scripture. And that's verse 13. And again, we'll come back and dissect some of the rest of the chapter next week. But... But hopefully by now you have your Bibles open. And so join with me as I read Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 19. And hear hear what Daniel has recorded. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel... I understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord and to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, ah, Lord. The great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. Daniel says in verse 5, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, rebelled and turned away from Your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But this day, public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders. And our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed 
the Lord our God by following His instructions that He set before us through His servants, the prophets. Verse 11, all Israel, all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promise curse written in the law of Moses. The servant of God has been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. He has carried out His words that He spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing, us, bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Now here's verse 13. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all that he has done. But we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day. We have sinned and we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. And the title of this morning's message is The Essential Act of Repentance. The Essential Act of repentance. And I want to encourage you that as you listen to the sermon this morning, we, we are going to do a, a Q&A. I know we've strayed away from that some uh, over the past few weeks, but there will be a time for question and answer. So if you have questions as we work through uh, our text this morning, I'd encourage you to write them there in the chat. And one of the pastors is recording them and we'll have a time to hopefully answer some questions at the end. But you know, often, often there are significant aspects of the Christian life that we talk about so frequently. Uh, we talk about it in, in, in church services. We, we, we say them in our prayers. We'll even speak them to one another. There are these significant aspects of the Christian faith that we talk about so frequently, but at the same time, they can be so easily neglected in our own lives. And I, I would bet, there's speculation here, but I, I would be willing to bet that for many Christians, ongoing repentance is one of those significant aspects 
that is easily neglected. I, I mean, we know from the Word of God, right? The Bible stresses to us the significance of repentance all throughout. I mean, Jesus' ministry begins in Matthew 4 with him declaring, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the start of Jesus' ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We, we know in Scripture that God longs for us to repent. I mean, Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter 3 when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. But listen to this. He says, But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And unless we be confused, this is not just a New Testament concept, right? This idea of repentance didn't just start when Jesus showed up on the scene and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, this concept, this idea, this essential act is riddled all throughout Scripture. We see it in Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 32, where, where God is speaking. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. And he says this, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. We see repentance even in this section of Daniel that we just read, verses 1 through 19. But, but I want to be clear, when we talk about the essential nature of repentance and this essential act of repentance, I, I want us to understand uh, the weight of this because there is, in my estimation, which comes from Scripture, there is no faithful Christian life apart from repentance. Uh, hear me say that. I understand the weight of that. There is no faithful Christian life apart from repentance. I mean, John the Baptist picks up on this very notion in Matthew 3 when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the implication there being that good fruit will only flow out of repentance. That if we are going to produce the fruit that God has called us to produce because of who we are in Christ, the only way of this fruit will, will spring up by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is when our lives are marked by repentance. And what we will see in Daniel 9 is Daniel performing this essential act of repentance. And, and as I mentioned, I want to focus primarily on one verse, on, on verse 13. And in this single verse, I would contend with you this morning that there are four lessons regarding repentance that will serve us well if we are going to be faithful in this truly essential act of repentance. Let me read to you verse 13 one more time. Daniel records, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. 
God, I want to take just a moment and pray this morning that you would give us hearts of repentance. That this would be an act that we would cherish and we would delight in, that we would long to live lives of repentance and and so bear fruit in, in our lives during our time on this earth. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here's the the first lesson that I have for you from Daniel 9, verse 13, in regards to this essential act of repentance. Here's the first lesson. It's long, so I'll, I'll say it a couple times. Repentance flows from a heart that recognizes the weight of sin and the devastation it causes. Repentance flows from a heart that recognizes the weight of sin and the devastation it causes. You see, Daniel alludes to this very idea at the beginning of verse 13, where he says, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Now, now here's what's interesting here. So Daniel links the law specifically as we see from what has come before it, the people's inability to follow the law. So he links the law and the people's inability to follow the law as the reason why they are experiencing the exile, the struggle, and the devastation that they are facing. Because we can't forget that as Daniel is is writing this, as this book is being recorded, the people of God are in exile. Right? They, they had been conquered by, by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then, and then <clears throat> we see Cyrus come and, and, and conquer them. But, but in all of this time, right, they're in exile. And so, so Daniel links their inability to follow the law. He links their sin to the reason why they are experiencing the exile, the struggle, and the devastation they are facing. Remember what he said in verses 5 and 6. He says, we have sinned. We've done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. So Daniel acknowledges that the sin the nation has committed is a weighty sin. And it matters. But, but not only that, Daniel acknowledges that this sin has brought with it a, a devastation that, that, that hasn't really been seen before. He said earlier in his, his, his prayer of repentance that what has happened to Jerusalem has never happened to any other nation under the sun. That the devastation that they have faced is somewhat inexplicable. It is so monumental. And so Daniel understands both the weightiness of his sin and he understands the devastation that his sin has caused. Daniel acknowledges that the reason he is where he is and the reason the people of Israel are in exile is because of their sin. Their sin has brought with it devastating consequences. And church, hear me. If we are going to be faithful in the essential act of repentance, we have to acknowledge those very same two things. That our sin is a weighty matter. It is no light matter. And that our sin brings with it real 
devastation. So first, this idea that our sin is no light matter. We have to be reminded, church, that our sin is not something to be trifled with. I mean, we as Christians have to be so careful that we don't lean so hard on this idea of grace that we think it frees us from having to kill the very sin that still exists in our life. And there is a real temptation for that. There's a temptation to say, man, we are under the grace of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We have been forgiven. We have been washed. We have been redeemed. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Therefore, we don't have to worry about killing the sin because Jesus already paid the debt for it. But I want to remind you this morning that yes, you are indeed under grace if you are in Christ Jesus. Yes, your sins have been paid for. And yes, in Christ Jesus, you are no longer condemned. But that is never an excuse to take sin lightly. John Owens in his book, The Mortification of Sin, you could, you could say the killing of sin. He, he writes this, he says, the root of an unmortified course. So he's talking about the course of a life that isn't fighting to kill sin. He says, the root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. When a, when a man has confirmed his imagination to such an apprehension of grace and mercy as to be able without bitterness to swallow and ingest daily sins. And he says this, that man is at the very brink of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. So let me paraphrase John Owen's beautiful quote there. He basically says that when you think so, little of your sin and think that because you are saved by grace you are free to think little of your sin you are headed for an inevitable destruction an inevitable destruction we see this very pattern warned against in james chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 when james writes but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. And he says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so what James is tracking, what he wants us to see is this dangerous pattern of taking sin lightly. And he says, listen, all sin starts with, with a desire, Right? It starts with the desire, and sometimes it's evil desire. Sometimes our sin can start with good desires. There are good desires that we can take to a place of being idolatry. Let me give you an example. Hunger is a natural desire that, that's within us. But hunger can easily be turned to gluttony. Right? There is nothing wrong with the desire to, to receive a paycheck and to pay your bills and to take care of your family. But, but that desire can can shift into an, an evil desire when it becomes greed. A sexual desire is not a bad thing. God has hardwired us to have that, but when that sexual desire starts to, to shift into lust or adultery or any form of sexual immorality, then, then it's gone 
too far. And, and what James picks up on is there is a point to where these desires that we have, where, where, they, where sin is conceived, right? It is created, it is, it is birthed. And at that moment, there's a real danger that if we don't kill the sin when, when it's present, ideally we, we stop it from turning into sin by guarding our desires. But, but if it is birthed into sin, if we do not check that sin, if we do not kill that sin, James warns that it will then give birth to death. We cannot think lightly of our sin. We have to remember that God does not think lightly of our sin. Our sin and rebellion is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the good and righteous and holy creator of the universe. And we we know that God does not take sin lightly because in order for God to reconcile us to himself, the payment for sin was the death and the shedding of blood of the innocent son of God. We cannot think for a moment that God takes our sin lightly. Therefore, we cannot take our sin lightly. There is no safe distance that you can hold your sin at and somehow keep it in control. No, no, the the aim of a Christian is to when sin rears its ugly head that we kill it. We don't try to tame it. We don't try to lock it away. We kill the sin so that it does not lead to death. And so we... We not only, though, not only do we not want to think lightly of our sin, but we have to understand that that sin brings devastation. Sin brings real devastation. I mean, you can look at the garden and see how devastating it was when Adam and Eve sinned. All the things that happened in the moment of the very first sin, that one singular sin that crept into God's created order and the devastation it caused because we saw death for the first time as God slaughtered an animal to wrap them in the bloody flesh to show them what it would take to cover their sin. Death was born in that moment. It was devastating and we saw the fact that now Adam would have to work the ground and tore and sweat would, would, would flow from him as he sought to bring forth food that no longer this creation that he was to rule and have dominion over would cooperate with him. And we saw for Eve that there would be pain in childbearing and that it would be a very difficult thing. And then we see the most devastating thing of all that takes place is that God removes them from his presence. And there is nothing as devastating as being cast away from the presence of God. Sin brings devastation. And this devastation has plagued every generation since. And we experience that devastation on both a personal and a global level. You see, we we experience that devastation on a personal level because sin left unchecked, left unrepented of, even in the life of of a believer, it will wreak havoc in our hearts and souls if we refuse to deal with it. To again quote John Owens, he says that every unmortified sin or every unkilled sin, he says, will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, and it will darken the soul, and deprive it of its comfort and peace. John Owen's not just pulling that out of anywhere, because listen to how David speaks of himself in an unrepentant state in Psalm chapter 32. 
David says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. David says that in the midst of unrepentant sin, it took a physical toll on him. He was weary. He was hurting. He was tired. And I would be willing to bet that many of you who are, who are Christians today have experienced that when we have refused to deal with our sin, where it just hurts. But then there is hope in repentance because David goes on and says in Psalm chapter 32, but then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And church, we have to be honest and acknowledge the reality that some of the pain and the hurt and the restlessness that we experience in this life is a result of sin in our own lives that we have not dealt with. Now, I'm not saying every pain that you endure, every struggle you face, because we know that the Bible speaks of other reasons that we endure hardship and pain and struggle, but I think we would be naive to think that we have, we have, we have dealt with every sin and therefore we feel no sting of it left in our lives because sin brings devastation and perhaps some of the restlessness in your soul, some of the, the struggle in some of your relationships, some of the, the heartache that you feel in this moment, perhaps, perhaps it's because there is sin that needs to be dealt with before the Lord. And when we deal with that, like David, we can say that when we acknowledge our sin and we don't conceal our iniquity, that God will forgive our transgressions. He will forgive all of our guilt. But the devastation that sin brings, it's not only personal. We also see it on a global level. We see the reality of the devastation of sin and the systemic injustices that happen in our world and, and, and the pain that still exists because sins were never truly dealt with. They were never truly repented of when they occurred and there has lasted this, this lingering devastation that we still feel in a real and tangible way. We see it in systems and in, and in neighborhoods, we know that sin brings with it devastating consequences. And so if we are going to be faithful in this essential act of repentance first, our repentance must flow from a heart that genuinely recognizes the weight of our sin and the devastation it causes. But here's the second lesson that I want you to see from Daniel 9, verse 13. The lesson is this. We must also recognize that God wants us to be reconciled to Him through repentance. God wants us to be reconciled to Him through repentance. And church, that's good news. But look at what comes next in verse 13. So he says, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, and here it is, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God. You see, Daniel understands, and you, you get his understanding in that statement that the favor of the Lord is possible. 
That's why he acknowledges that they haven't sought the favor of the Lord because Daniel is also simultaneously acknowledging the fact that the favor of the Lord can be sought and it can be sought through forgiveness and grace and mercy by a holy covenant-keeping God because God wants a people for himself. God wants us to be reconciled to him through repentance. Daniel speaks of this again in verse 4 when he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. See, in this statement, Daniel is reflecting on the fact, he is being reminded of the truth, that our God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. Daniel remembers this, that God invited them into a covenant relationship where God would be their God, but their end of the bargain was to be faithful to keep the commands of God. And all of this points to the truth that God wants to be in a relationship with His people. I mean, so much so that God fought to keep the nation of Israel, even in their rebellion, rebellion by sending the prophets. Verse 6. The prophets weren't sent to the people for no reason. God was warning them and calling them to repentance and telling them of the coming devastation and judgment that their sin would bring. Now, they failed to listen to them, but even in that act, you see God fighting to be in relationship with His people. God wants to be reconciled even with those who have rebelled against Him. Daniel says in verse 9 that compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Though we have rebelled against Him, even in the midst of our rebellion, our God is still a God of compassion and forgiveness. Praise Him for that. And in light of this compassion and forgiveness that God extends, Daniel pleads with with God in verse 19, Lord, hear Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. But I love that before that he says, for we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous act, but based on your abundant compassion. Daniel is banking on the truth that God wants to be reconciled with sinful people. The very ability to seek the favor of the Lord reveals that God allows his favor to be sought. He wants to be in a relationship with us. And church, that truth should just drive us to our knees in worship. That God Himself, the creator of this universe, wants to be in a relationship with us even though we have rebelled against Him. Even though we have tried to rob Him of His glory, God wants to be reconciled to us. And church, nowhere is that truth more clearly seen than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is what Ephesians 2 tells us. You've heard me quote it so frequently because it is a beautiful gospel picture. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in 
and the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath as the others were also. And so you might ask the question, well, how do you know that God wants to be in a relationship with those kind of people because of the next two words in Ephesians 2, but God. Not but you, not because you desired it, not because you wanted it, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us. He made us alive together with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. And for by grace you have been saved. The gospel declares to us that our God longs to be reconciled to people, that he allows for us to be reconciled to him by coming to him in faith and repentance. Because even though we were slaves to sin, even though we were trapped in the pit of despair, and if we were honest, we didn't even really want to get out of it. In the midst of that, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And if we are going to be faithful to repent, we need to be reminded of the truth that God wants to be in covenant relationship with us. And again, I just, this, this point has just hit me so hard. I just want to, I want to pause here for a minute and just cherish that truth. That God wants to be in a relationship with us with me. And God wants to be in a relationship with you. God wants us to be reconciled to him through faith and repentance. And the incredible thing, church, is that the more we believe this, the more our hearts will long to repent when sin is present. But I want you to know that Satan wants us to believe the opposite. When we are struggling with, or even if you are listening and you are still enslaved to sin, Satan wants you to believe that you have offended God so much that he can't stand you. Satan wants you to believe that you have offended God so deeply that there is no way he could ever walk in fellowship with you. And we as Christians are tempted to believe that. I've shared that with you. That's one of my great struggles when it comes to confession and repentance is I can get trapped in this way of thinking that I have had to repent of this so many times and I've had to confess this so many times. There is no way that God wants to hear this. There is no way that God still wants me in church. I am here to tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell because God longs for us to come to him in repentance and he longs for us to come to him in repentance over and over and over again every time we see sin present in our life and you can go back to what we read earlier in second Peter 3 and be reminded of that that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness but he is patient toward you praise God. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We saw that in Ezekiel chapter 18, where it says that God does not delight in the death of anyone. God does not want anyone separated from him. 
And so when Satan whispers in your ear that God is sick of you, you have to understand that that is Satan and not the voice of our holy, compassionate, good, and loving God because he says to all who are weary and all who are heavy laden, come to me and find rest. He says that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful and just over and over and over and over again to forgive us of our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because our God is that kind and he is that patient and he is that good the way that we are reconciled to God is through repentance and God wants us to be reconciled to him so now we come to a very important question which our last two lessons will help us answer this morning and I've been out of the saddle for a little bit. I've got to pick up the pace here, right? Here's the question that we have to answer. How do we repent? How do we repent? Well, again, these last two lessons will help answer that question. So let's consider our third lesson this morning. Repentance demands turning away from sin. Repentance demands turning away from sin. So how do we repent? It begins with turning away from sin. Look once again at verse 13. It says, Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord. Now listen to this. By. So here is, this is how you seek the favor of our God. By. And he says, turning away from our iniquities by turning from our iniquities Daniel is saying that a means of seeking the favor of the Lord is by turning away from sin and this is an essential part of repentance you see dependence I'm sorry repentance demands that we turn away from our sin We'll talk in a moment about what it is that we turn to, but it begins with turning away from sin. And and I want to be clear, when we talk about turning away from sin, we mean more than simply acknowledging our sin, right? Because confession is acknowledging our sin. And that is important, but repentance takes it a step further and it's it's not only confessing that sin it's not it's not acknowledging it and confessing that it is wrong but repentance takes it that next step and says and as i see that i'm going to turn away from that sin and it is pursuing something other than that sin and this church this act of repentance it's not a one time thing in the life of a believer It is meant to be the pattern of our life. We are to live lives of repentance. You see, it's it's not enough to repent once when you first believe and think, that's enough. And some people might think that, well, the the Bible says that if I I repent and believe, I can be saved. That that is correct. That is absolutely true. I I ascribe to that. Amen. I'll say that same thing to you. But it doesn't mean that that one moment of repentance was enough repentance for the entirety of your life. Why? Well, because we battle sin every day. 
And we sin every day, even though we are made new in Christ, even though we are new creations, even though positionally we are right before the Father because of what Christ has done. Nothing will change that. Absolutely nothing. But practically, we're, stri- we're still trying to flesh this thing out. We're still trying to put off the old self and put on the new man. We're trying to kill sin, and that is a daily fight. And therefore, we, we must be people who repent every day. Now, I want to caution you with something. There is a temptation to think that genuine repentance will mean that we will never commit a sin that we repented of again. Right? We've, we've heard it said different ways. Some of us might have even said this. Well, if you're truly sorry, it means you won't do it again. Right? To spiritualize it. If, if you truly repent, you won't do it again. Now, that may be the case, but often it's not. Because as you, as you have heard me mention time and time again, we often struggle with patterns of sin in our life. And, and it does not mean our repentance is not sincere or genuine if, if we struggle with the same sin again in the future. Now, I do believe that repentance means that we will be making strides in overcoming that sin. But I don't think the genuineness of your repentance is determined by whether or not you ever sin in that specific way again. Because you and I, we all know that none of us would ever then repent because we tend to struggle in patterns i know my patterns of sin i know what i struggle with and i'm fighting daily to overcome and repenting frequently of those sins but i don't think it means that that repentance is any less genuine because i continue to struggle with those sins now we may overcome a sin once we repent, I'm not saying it can't happen. There are, there are times where God is kind and, and we sin in one way that, is, that, that might be somewhat unique or novel to us and it's not been the pattern of our sin and, and we repent of that and God in His kindness keeps us from ever falling into that sin again. It can happen, but I want you to hear me say that the genuineness of your repentance is not determined by whether or not you sin in the same way again. The genuineness of your repentance is found in whether or not you will continue to repent of your sin. Now, I want to mention something here before we move on. If we're going to be faithful to repent of sin, right, to turn away from our iniquities, it means that we, we have to be honest about what our iniquities are. We, we have to be honest about what our sin actually is and, and be able, through the power of the Spirit, to identify where, where our sin is in our life. And one of the things the Holy Spirit just kind of laid on my heart as I was thinking through this is often I think we have way too limited of a view of what our sin is. And here's what I mean by that. So bear with me. Typically, I think when we think of sin, we only, only might not be the best word, maybe we predominantly think of sin that needs to be repented of as things that we are doing that we shouldn't do. Right? Sins of commission, sins that, that we commit, right? So, so we think, man, we need to repent of the fact that we just told that lie, or, or we need to repent of the fact that, that we were lusting in our, in our hearts and in our minds, or, or we need to repent of the fact that we've been deceitful, and we need to repent of these bad things that we are doing, and you should do that. Amen. Praise God. I, I believe you should repent of those things, but I think our sin is so much broader than that. 
Because we can't forget that repentance is needed for sins of omission as well, meaning things that we don't do that we should be doing. When we neglect to do the things that we are called to do as children of God, let me try to give you a really practical example. You know the Great Commission is not an option, right? It is a command of Scripture. Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded with you. That is not a suggestion by Jesus to his disciples. That is a command that is given to every member of the church of Jesus Christ for all time. Do you realize that every moment that you have an opportunity to share the gospel and you fail to share the gospel, you are sinning against God. That's a sin to not do what you are called to do. Yet how often does our repentance reflect sins of omission, things that we don't do that we should be doing? And if we are going to turn from our iniquities, we have to be genuinely honest and aware, listening to the conviction of the Spirit and daily repenting of our sin. And one aspect of repentance is turning away from sin. But there's another side to that same coin. And that leads us to our fourth and final lesson as we consider this essential act of repentance. So not only does repentance demand a turning from sin, but repentance demands a pursuit of God. Repentance demands a pursuit of God. Look at the end of verse 13 there. He says, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities, and check this out, and paying attention to your truth. And paying attention to your truth. So the other side of pursuing the favor of the Lord is not just turning from your iniquities, but it's also turning to the Lord. It's running after Him and His truth and pursuing Him. Daniel concludes this verse and says, listen, we are in the position that we are in. We are feeling the devastation of our sin and we have not repented. We have not turned from our sin and we have not run after you. That's what he is declaring to God. Repentance not only demands turning from sin, but it also demands turning to God. And in this, now check this out, this is so cool, because in this, we see the aspect of faith come to the forefront. Because remember, all throughout the New Testament, receiving salvation is tied to two things and two things only. Faith and repentance. And here in this declaration by Daniel, you see how the two work together and how they are intimately linked in the process of being reconciled to God. And so what I'm trying to say is that, listen, you cannot repent without faith. And if you have faith, it will force you to repent. Right? You you can't turn from your sins in a way that pleases God unless you're turning to God. And you can't turn to God unless you have turned away from your sins. There is an inseparable link between faith and repentance. And Daniel says that the great failure of the people is that they have not turned from their sin and they have not also turned to God. And in essence, what Daniel is saying is that the people are lost. 
But the remedy, the reconciliation comes in turning from sin and trusting in God and what he says. And again, both are required if repentance is to be genuine. Repentance is not genuine if turning from sin is missing or turning to God is missing. Let me give you a great example. I think by some of our definitions of repentance, Judas would have been saved. I don't think he was saved, and let me explain. Because Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, he confessed his sin. He even went so far as to make recompense for his sin. He gave back the pieces of silver. So not only did he acknowledge that he had sinned, and and not only did he go a step further, further than some of us even go, he sought to make recompense for his sin by giving back the pieces of silver, but we would still say that Judas was not saved. Why? Because he may have acknowledged his sin, he may have turned from it, but he didn't turn to God. Therefore, it was not genuine repentance. I had a lot more I was going to say about that, but we're running low on time. So if we are going to be faithful to repent, not only must we turn from our sin, but we have to turn to and trust in faith that God, God knows best and His ways are best. That when God says to do a certain thing, it is because God knows that it is the best thing for us. And when God says not to do a certain thing, it is because God knows that that is what is best for us. It is believing that God knows best and at its core, what is, it is, it is a failure to believe that God knows what is best. We see this in Jeremiah 2.13. It sums it up so well where, where, where Jeremiah says, well, Jeremiah's recounting what God says. And God says, For my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so what God is communicating to the people through Jeremiah is that there are two problems with what God's people did. And I would argue that all of our sin boils down to these two things fleshed out in different ways. One, it is denying that what God has is best. God says that that you have forsaken me, the spring of living water. He's saying, I am the true water. I am the living water. And the problem comes in that you have forsaken me. But it goes even further. And this is where the disbelief that God knows knows what is best, where this comes in. Because he says, not only have you turned from me, the spring of living water, but you've dug your own cisterns and they're broken and, and they don't hold water. Again, not that you can't put water in them, not that you can't be temporarily satisfied, that you can't feel a moment of pleasure, but what he's saying is they're cracked, they're broken, they don't last, and yet here I am, the spring of everlasting life and everlasting water, and you turn for me and you pursue lesser things, and the reason being because we think, we genuinely think those lesser things are going to be better than the spring of living water. And even when we say that out loud, it seems so stupid that we would forsake the spring of living water for lesser water, for for broken cisterns, but brothers and sisters, you and me included, that is the pattern we fall into when we sin. We say, God, I see you, but I don't think you're best. I don't think you know. When you tell me not to do that, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. So I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, believing that that's best. This is our great failure. And yet, faith and repentance are the antithesis of Jeremiah 2.13. Church, we want to be people who trust God. But in order to do this, we actually have to know Him and what He says. That's why 
Daniel says, paying attention to your truth. We need to know the truth of God. We need to know what is best and what is right and what God has for us if we are going to be faithful to follow and trust him. So as I bring this thing to a close, church, if we are going to be faithful in this essential act of repentance, we have to remember that repentance flows from a heart that recognizes the weight and the devastation it causes. God wants us to be reconciled to himself through repentance. We have to remember that repentance demands turning from sin. And we have to understand that repentance demands a pursuit of God. And before we close, though, let me mention this one final thing that is so important. It's the thing that ultimately led Daniel to the place of repentance in the first place. Look again at verses 2 and 3. You may have closed your Bible because I said in conclusion, the people that are here had to reopen their Bibles. Verses 2 and 3, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer, petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So Daniel... Here's what this is saying, that Daniel, after reading the word of God and believing the truth of God's word, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, he understood that the time of captivity was coming to an end. That Israel, he, he, he got this from the book of Jeremiah, that Israel was to be in captivity for 70 years and then released. And at this time, they had already been in captivity for over 60 years. So Daniel believes the, the promise of God that they will be set free from captivity. And Daniel knows, though, that in order to avoid the same fate and the same judgment and the same devastation that, that sin causes in the future, that they are enduring now, the people People needed to repent. Daniel understood that repentance was urgent. And I would contend with you this morning, new breed and friends who are listening, that the essential act of repentance is just as urgent for us today. For both the believer and the unbeliever. Because for the believer, whether at our death or Christ's return, we want to be found faithful. We want to have walked in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We want to have run this race in such a way as to win the prize. And the only way we do that is by living lives marked by repentance where we are daily turning from sin and running after God. Where we are turning from those sins that we commit that we should not be committing and running after God. That we are turning from those sins of omission by, by not doing the things that we should be doing and we run after God by, by doing the things that he has called us to. We, we want to be found faithful to, to run the race in such a way as to win the prize. And again, this demands that we as believers live lives marked by repentance. But this is urgent for you if you are listening and you are an unbeliever today. I want you to know that the Bible says that our life is but a vapor. There's an urgency here. Our life is like a, a mist, like a fog. It is here for a moment and then it is gone. And none of us know when we will breathe our last breath. 
But what we do know is that the scripture says that it is destined for everyone to die once and then face judgment. And if you are listening and you are not a believer, I want you to know that the full measure of that judgment will be poured out on you if you have not been saved by Jesus. Because what the Bible tells us is that our sin separates us from God. I mentioned earlier, our sin is rebellion against Him. And yes, God longs for us to repent and God doesn't wish that any should perish. But we have to have faith and repent to receive that gift of salvation. And our sin separates us from God. And if we die in that separated state, we will feel the full measure and wrath of God's judgment. And that will be eternal separation from Him. But the good news is that God loves you. I want you to hear me say that if you are listening and you are a believer, if you are listening and you are not a believer, God loves you. Even though you struggle with sin, even though you are enslaved to sin, God loves you. Even though you are His enemy apart from Christ, God loves you. And we see this love in a tangible way in Jesus Christ, who came and and lived the perfect life that we should have lived but can't. And then he died in our place and he took that full measure of God's judgment and wrath on himself so that we could come to the Father in faith and repentance and find salvation and freedom and life. And so my prayer for you, if you were an unbeliever, is that you would place your faith in God through Jesus Christ that you would repent of your sins and run after him. And my prayer is that all of us, all of us, will see the significance and necessity of the essential act of repentance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you you are a God who has told us that sin is weighty and that it brings devastation. I thank you that you have told us that even though we sin, even though we rebel, that you are a God who loves us and who wants us to come to you in faith and repentance and to be reconciled. God, we thank you that your word tells us that for those of us who are in Christ, that when we confess our sins, even over and over and over and over again, your faithfulness will always outdo our confession. You will always forgive us of our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray that we would live lives marked by turning from our sin and running after you, believing God, genuinely believing that you know what is best. God, I pray that we will find our hope and our hope alone in Jesus Christ. For He alone is worthy and He alone saves. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.